another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and the changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it is, almost always from my 50 mile commute, uh, from my personal mobile studio, which is my Jetta Diesel TDI. It's a 2006 uh, little car. And um, we share our morning drive together here uh, with that. I usually publish a show around 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, so unless you listen to it the following day, I guess we don't share our morning drive. Maybe I share your work day. Maybe I share your commute home. Uh, but one way or another, I look at myself and my audience's friends that are discussing the problems uh, with our world and what we can do about it as individuals. My show is not about changing the world. It's not even about changing our country directly. It's about changing individuals. It's about when people look out around them and they go, this isn't right. And beyond just the moral, ethical, this isn't right, but this isn't right. The way we're living is not right anymore. We're packed in like sardines into these urban communities. People are not being taught ethics in school anymore. They're not taught being taught a morally right, morally wrong view of the world. They're being taught this some sort of weird, everybody's okay. We're not keeping score in Little League and Little Kids Softball and, and soccer anymore. We're, you know, everybody's, Everything's a tie. We can't tell anybody that you failed. If a company fails, we bail them out. If a government fails, we bail it out. If a person fails, we let them fail into a system of support so that they then become controlled by the state. And we look at this all, and collectively, we're all beginning to say, this isn't right. And you can't have societies exist this way for you know an infinite period of time before something goes wrong. Either it's a natural disaster, which is something we're going to talk about today, and because people have not built any kind of independence for themselves anymore... Since people view uh, farming as going to the grocery store and hunting as going to the meat section at the grocery store, when something goes wrong and disrupts the supply chain, they're not going to be able to handle it. And then they're going to turn on each other and we're going to be stuck in the middle of it. That's what my show's about. It's about that sickening little twinge feeling in your stomach that you get every day as you're driving through traffic where there's way too many people in too small of an area. And you look around and you just say, this isn't right. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And I need to do something so that I can deal with it, so that I can get closer to what is supposed to be right. And so if something goes wrong, I don't go down in flames with some of these people I'm looking at around me that clearly have no idea what to do. They have no plan. They have no savings of money or supplies. They have nowhere to go. And they are going to freak out if something goes wrong. So I must, for myself and for those that I care about, I must do something. 
And a big way that we do that, folks, is not just the practical application, what do we do? How do we do it? Where do we store our food? How do we store our food? How do we how do we uh, pay off our debt? What process do we use for that? How do we make sure we stay out of debt? How do we analyze our budgets? How, how do we do everything economically and technically the right way? Beyond that, it's thinking about what its scenarios. And people think a lot of times that survivalists are negative people because we think about, well, what if there's a nuclear war? What if there's a chemical weapons attack? What if there's a flu pandemic? What if there's a hurricane? What if there's a volcanic eruption? What if there's a tsunami? And if you if you look at that from the outside and you don't have any fascination with the power that that has and, and how humans have not been exterminated by it, but how, how humans have gotten through these things in the past, how people have survived in the past. And if you, if you don't see the triumph of the, of the human spirit in those disasters, then yeah, it looks pretty negative. But for those of us who are simply realists, we simply look at it and go, well, just about everything there other than nuclear war has happened in the past. And people have had to deal with it. And that means that it can happen again, but it also means that we can get through whatever comes our way if we prepare. And if we think about things, and if we run what-if scenarios in our heads. And the one we're going to run through today together is one that actually has a real probability of occurring in our lifetimes. Now, that probability is low. 1% maybe, 2%. But it's it's there and it's real. And either it's going to happen or it's not. And this is not something, despite what maybe environmental freaks will tell you, that we're going to have a big say-so in. Nothing we do is really going to change whether this happens or not. And what I'm talking about is climate change. But hold on to your foil hat out there, folks. This is not the climate change that Al Gore is warning us about, where if the temperature of the Earth goes up one degree over 100 years, the whole world is going to end. See, because the, the Earth used to be about three degrees centigrade, on average, warmer than it is right now. Not that long ago. Right before the big event we're going to talk about today. At that time when it was warmer, three degrees warmer, which which when you watch the global warming conspiracy films, right, it, it, the three degrees is life on Earth as we know it is over. We're all going to, right, well, it already was that warm. During a period called the medieval warming. Okay, And what the medieval warming actually was, was the end of the Dark Ages. The end of, of a time of real misery. And we went into this period called the medieval warming, and you know, look this stuff up on Google and verify the science behind it for yourself. But society on the earth exploded with prosperity when the earth was three degrees warmer than it is today. It was a wonderful time for humanity. The, the, the island of Greenland was green. That's why they called it Greenland. There was thriving uh, uh, European civilizations being developed in Greenland. They were, you know, except for the coldest part of winter, they had their sheep on the mountains most of the year, grazing on immense uh, fields of clover and other uh, green uh, grasses and stuff. Hold on, folks, i got to deal with a lane change and a jerk ass. Anyway, so that's what went on during this horrific time when the earth was three degrees warmer than it is today. And then something happened. 
something that only went away about 150, 200 years ago when it finally ended. And it, it was a period of time that lasted 500 years. Half of a millennia this thing stayed around. And it went from a beautiful, wonderful time to be a human on the planet, other than the fact that people were serfs and living on the king's land, which, God, we're getting back there. Hate to say it, but we are. But from a standpoint of being able to grow food, to have the things that you needed to survive, and folks, every human being that lived during this time, this medieval warming time, we would call today a survivalist. They, they literally lived off the land. You didn't have 7-Eleven, and you didn't have welfare checks. And But this was a good time to be a serf. If there was ever such a time, it was this medieval warming. And then one spring, right after everybody planted the crops, rain came. And it rained. And it rained. And it rained. And it wasn't the warm spring rains that saturate the ground so that the crops will grow and so that everything will come back into spring and summer. It was cold, miserable, pounding rain. And it never really stopped. Now, I'm not talking no a flood. I'm talking, yeah, it would stop for a day or two, and then the, it would come back and rain again. And then it would stop for a few days, and it would come back and rain again. And it never really got warm that year. Not warm the way it had all the years before. It was just a cold, rainy summer. And a lot of the crops failed. And everybody said, well, it was a bad year. We've heard that with the stock market, right? We've heard that with the weather. We've heard that in every sector of humanity. Oh, it was a bad year. Next year will be better. And, of course, folks thought the same thing back then. And next year came, and it was colder and wetter and rainier. And in a decade, a period of complete prosperity broke down into what became known as the Little Ice Age. How cold was it? Well, we have a lot of history that went on in that 500-year period, including the you know, colonization of America. And I don't think a lot of people realize this, but a big reason that European countries started to colonize into southern Africa, into the New World, all into these places with deeper southern climates was because it was so dadgum cold. They were looking for ways to expand production of agriculture. Big thing that we're not taught about. That was a huge driving force. If you wanted to uh, have a farm, England wasn't the place during this. How cold was it? Well, for about a 300-year period of history, there was a thing called the Frost Fest in London. And the last one was held, again, not that long ago, 1814. It's where the, the climate finally warmed up enough that this didn't happen this way every year anymore. It was called the Frost Fest. And basically what it was is that the River Thames in London froze solid every winter. And they would set up a carnival out in the middle of the river. And they were doing that right up till 1814. It was cold enough that in the winter you didn't need to worry about a ferry to get from Staten Island to Manhattan. People just walked across the harbor because it was frozen solid. It was cold enough that during the march back by Napoleon's troops from Russia, over 90% of his troops died from freezing to death and starvation. 
It was so cold on that march that his men were literally cutting pieces of flank meat off of horses while the horses marched. And the outer part of the horse's body was so cold and numb and frozen that they could cut a piece of meat off a living horse that would keep walking and the horse never felt it. There's one account during that march where it was so cold that it was snowing, the snow stopped falling. It just floated in a strange, surreal way that I don't think anybody else has ever recorded anywhere else on the planet. Snow just basically hovering as people marched through it on a death march trying to get back home. That's how cold it was. And what was the difference in temperature from today? Well, much like the medieval warming was around 3 degrees centigrade warmer, the average global temperature was about 3 degrees centigrade colder than it is today. In other words, what I'm telling you is both of the climatic change scenarios have happened in history. The the horrific consequences of warming the planet three degrees resulted in a period of prosperity. And you can't argue with it. It happened. It was here. We have the record. It's in writing. It's in print. It's in drawing. It's in art. We have the results in the construction boom that happened during it. Things like the Leaning Tower of Pisa were built during the medieval warming. The great cathedrals of Rome and England, France, were built during the medieval warming. And then, over a 10-year period, the temperature dropped almost 6 degrees centigrade to 3 degrees lower than today. And it was a catastrophic event that lasted 500 years that pushed civilization, quite frankly, to the verge of extinction. One of the other things that happened during this chill was the bubonic plague. And the plague has always been with us. There's still plague today. There's rats that have plague disease in their fleas in the deserts of the United States today. What made plague so effective at killing people was the lack of sanitation, the extremely frigid temperatures. And if you think about it at the time, what would people do when it was that cold and wet and rainy out? They all went inside. And they lived in small, cramped, tight spaces. And the plague killed a third of the population. A third. You look out your window, count cars, count people, count whatever you see right now. Take two of every three away. That's how many it killed. So, it's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? Well, the reality is that the leading climatologists out there today aren't really talking much about global warming anymore. Oh, the guys on the UN uh, you know, payroll that want uh, to uh, push the propaganda story and are working for the agenda of the carbon tax, which is a global taxation. Uh, yeah, they're, they're behind it. But the real scientists, the, uh, the dissenters, the thousands who have signed a petition that says that global warming is just not proven to be caused by man, are looking at things and going, well, what are the weather patterns really showing us right now? And they're saying that our biggest risk in the short-term future, meaning 100 to 200 years, is a cooling period. And that we had all this hype leading up 96, 97, 98 to how hot the planet was getting. We were warming, we were warming, and we were warming. But since the peak, we've been cooling every year. So 
the possibility is there. Now, do I think you should run out and buy a bunch of cold weather gear if you live in the state of Texas tomorrow uh, and get ready to live like Edmund Hillary on the top of Everest? No. Let's be real. Let's not you know, seal up the foil hats on our heads and, and, and hunker down. But let's also just simply look at the possibility of a decade of cooling and what it would look like at the end of that decade. What it would mean to us. And let's look at our survival plans and what we think we would do and how they would be impacted over time. Let's look at the way that other countries would react to this and what it would mean for us. Let's just say that in the spring of 2011, two years from now, it starts to rain that cold, hard rain. And it has a massive detrimental effect on global agriculture. Now, it would never have the effect that it did back in the Middle Ages, or the, you know, the, the, the Middle Ages during the Little Ice Age. And the reason that it would not have the same effect is simply that we have better techniques today. We have better hybrid uh, crops. We have better uh, methods of, of getting crops through. We have agriculture much more spread across, across the globe. We're not so dependent on local agriculture. Now, you know, I think it's important to support local agriculture, but this is the advantage of having your agricultural system spread out. If northern Europe and the northern United States take it the teeth, it may still be very good growing conditions for southern Europe and the southern United States. In fact, it may be better because as the temperature com- comes down, the crops down there are less susceptible to the damages of heavy heat and drought. Right? So there is some offsetting there, but we just have that first year, and we have a big dent in agriculture. We all remember what happened to food prices when we started producing biodiesel. They went way, way up. Now imagine that effect magnified by three or four times. Now during, this is just a year ago, folks. This summer, we had Indian and Pakistani farmers sleeping with guns in their fields because hungry people were stealing the food before it was fully mature from their fields because the cost of food had gone up so high. That was just biofuel. That was just biofuel really in the United States. We were the only ones that really jumped on that bandwagon last year and decided we were going to do it big time and for real. And that's what happened to the price of food. So we watched the price of food go up. What else is going to start going up that we've already seen happen in the past and we've already seen the effect that it has? Well, of course, oil, natural gas, diesel fuel, gasoline, all petroleum-based products will increase in price exponentially. Far more than the four bucks, five bucks we saw last summer. That was driven by speculation and by some market factors. What we have now, if we see this global temperature drop, is a society that almost extensively heats its home with fossil fuels. Now, I'm not coming down on carbon as being the evil poison that's going to kill us all here. I'm just saying that's what we depend on. Coal, heating oil, natural gas. And then derivatives of those things that are used by power companies produce electricity. So even if you're looking at your house and go, well, I have electric, an electric furnace to keep my house warm, somebody's burning something somewhere so that that heat will come out of your house. 
And there's, there's some nuclear in this country, but we're not building that infrastructure at all, which is just a mistake, a huge mistake. And we're not going to do it anytime in the next eight years because of the administration that we're going to be under during those eight years. So nuclear is not coming. The alternative energy is only going to do so much. And, you know, right now it's pretty rainy today. It's a good rain here. It's not this evil uh, global cooling rain. Uh, but today, if you have solar power panels on your roof in Texas, you ain't getting much bang for your buck. And in good climates, solar and wind can't do it. They can't get us there alone, not without nuclear, not during the next 50 years. So we have a blind government that won't address this problem, and we watch petroleum prices shoot up through the roof, and we watch food prices shoot up through the roof. Now, Americans are beginning to start to grow their own food again in their backyard, but the same thing that cripples the farmer's farm cripples your vegetable plot. Now, you're trying to deal with this cold, miserable, rainy summer. How will your plants make it through? Will you grow other plants? Do you have plans to switch your crops to something that will grow? One of the lessons of the Little Ice Age was the potato. Spanish explorers had brought the potato back from South America. They presented the potato to the Europeans, who thought the potato was a dirty little thing. They didn't want it, because it came from these weird, you know, red-colored people that lived out in the savage world. But eventually, most of the people decided this potato thing is pretty good. You cook it, you eat it, it tastes good. It grows very, very reliably. When it rains and it's cold, it still grows. It's not like a cereal grain. It doesn't get beaten down by the rain. But the French, the French who ironically eventually came up with the French fry, would not eat the potato. And they went well into the little ice age refusing the potato. And tens upon thousands of them died of starvation that didn't have to because they would not eat potatoes. And the aristocracy, you know, always being looked at as like not caring about the people, really did care about the people in many ways. The people were their lifeblood. Without the people, who would they tax? Without the people, who would they rule? Who would they lead? They didn't want all the people to die. So the king of France actually issued a decree saying, I eat potatoes for supper every day. Potatoes are my favorite. Right? The king's like trying to get the people still refused to eat the potato. Will we learn that lesson this time around as individuals? I'm not asking if the system will learn the lesson. You need to become independent from the system. We talked about that Friday. I'll talk more about that tomorrow with a formal act of secession from the systems that I'm going to ask people that listen to this show to consider taking and stating that you will secede from the systems. All right? Will you learn that lesson? Have you learned that lesson? Now let's go into 2012, and everybody has been saying that, you know, 2011, tough year. Uh, It's got to be better. It doesn't get better. It gets colder. Let's say we go into that winter, and we start to see ice in places that we don't normally see ice. Things start to freeze over that we don't normally see freeze over. The the cost of fuel and food continues to increase, and there becomes a time where we have to start rationing once again. And again, these things that people think are like, wow, rationing. We did it in the 70s with gasoline, folks. We have such short memories in this country. We rationed gas in the 70s. 
It's only 30 years ago, and we act like it's a million miles away. There was more oil in the 70s left in the ground than there is today. There were less people to use it. We were less dependent on foreign oil than we are today. And people ignore it at their own peril. So we go into that that first winter into this, and it is brutal. What happens now to the price of everything? Now is the point going into this second year through that winter into that spring when the climatologists pull their heads out of their global warming asses and look up and go, this isn't an arboration. Uh, we're in a pattern now. This is, we don't know. And, they, and the government starts screaming, well, okay, beanheads, how long? We don't know. But, uh, yeah, this is not good. Um, and some of them will still be screaming, it's global warming in reverse. It's going to turn around and, he, uh, you know, kill the carbon. And some of the idiots may actually persuade people in high places to do just that. But in reality, the governments are going to start looking at this thing and going, you know, we we have a problem. We have 7 billion people damn near on the earth today that we're going to have to try to feed. And this is what's coming. And it's not going to get better this year. And this is where governments start looking at strategic oil reserves around the world and start saying, we need more. And the Chinese look at their billion-plus population, and India looks at its billion-plus population. And then the two of them turn and they look at the United States and they say, Hey, you guys are using more than the two of us. You guys have 300-some-odd million people, and between us, we have two and a half billion. We're entitled to more. It's only fair. And that's when we start to see military tensions rise with two potential superpowers, both with nuclear capabilities. And we have a Russia with resurgent military strength. And if anybody's going to be hit by hard by a global cooling period, it's Russia. That's where all those soldiers of Napoleon died just simply trying to march back from. The, the Russians didn't even fight them anymore. They just ran away. They just ran away and ran away and ran away and ran away and just kept going until the supply lines ran short. And Napoleon was left with no, quite, no, no alternative but to turn around. And lost over 100,000 men just walking home. That's where that happened. You think they're just going to sit around and wait? They're also sitting on some of the largest oil reserves in the world. You think they're going to continue to sell it and let their own people freeze to death? So, this scenario is not that far out there. It's a hell of a lot more likely than black helicopters and United Nations troops marching in U.S. streets and rounding people up that some of you guys are kind of like, you know, that could happen. And I'm not saying it could never happen. I'm just saying this is this is more likely because history's already shown us that it can happen. And there isn't anything we can do to stop it. There's no, what the idiot scientists are doing right now are trying to figure out how to cool the planet. If anything, they might cause it. They're out there trying to figure out how to create clouds that reflect sunlight. This is a genius idea. How to put out beacons and satellites around the Earth that reflect sunlight. And actually cool the temperature of the planet. That's what scientific money is going into right now. There's a whole show on it. It's on Discovery or Science Channel or something like that. You can watch these people and these experiments that they're running to see can it work. And they're looking at some of it going, yeah, we can make this work. This would actually do what we think it will. This will actually make the planet cooler. 
Folks, we don't want the planet cooler. We'd actually like the planet kind of to stay the way that it is right now. A little bit warmer than it was in the 60s and the 50s and the 70s. And not much warmer than this. This is a pretty optimum time. And if it gets a little bit warmer, that's okay. No, New York City is not going to be underwater. It's not going to happen. Because it didn't happen the last time the temperature was this high. We'll have to deal with malaria on an uprise because of more mosquitoes if we get a warmer planet. But otherwise, we're in pretty good shape with a warmer planet. Cooler planet, completely the opposite. Now, here's what we have to realize. If you go back and look at the climatary data, there's a propensity for people to believe that wherever you are is average, right? Wherever things were kind of okay is the average temperature of the planet. The Earth, for most of its history, for most of its history, was either much, much warmer than today or much, much colder than it is today. This little zone that we're in right now that we think of as normal, is we should be doing everything we possibly can as humans to keep the planet where it is. This is not normal. This is not a normal climate over the 6 billion years of history that the planet, 4 billion years of history that planet Earth has existed. This is not a normal climate for the past half million years, 500,000 years. We're not in the normal. The normal's warmer or colder. We're in this little flux that comes in the middle. So one way or another, we may have to deal with climate change. And all I want you to do today is, again, think, how would you deal with it if it happened to be a climate change into the cold? Could you move south? Is that even an option? How many other people would decide that the south's looking like a better place to live today than uh, maybe New England? Huge population centers in the northeast. Providence, Rhode Island. Boston, Massachusetts. New York City. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, down into Baltimore, Maryland, which we actually think of as the South right now, would no longer be the South. What would that huge population do in response to winters that started the last six months? What would that huge population do in response to New York Harbor freezing solid and us having to bring in ice-breaking ships to get cargo in and out of the harbor? Oh, yeah, we didn't even think about that, did we? You know, we didn't have to worry about how much supply was coming into this country in 1800, 1700, 1600, when those harbors would freeze. It wasn't that tragic. There weren't that many people to provide for here. We planned for it. You could bring in masses of material goods and take masses of exports out during the good times and plan for the cold. We now run a situation where giant ships are in and out every day right across the year. What happens when that giant ship carrying all that Chinese crap that's supposed to go on to the shelves at Walmart can't come into Manhattan Harbor because it's frozen solid? These are the things that we need to think about. Now, here is the interesting thing. There are certain things that we talk about doing here at all times. Debt elimination, cash reserves, growing some of your own food, storing at least six months, if not more, food. Having ways to heat and cool your home. Having some level of energy independence, be it solar or wind or both. 
that is the prescription for how you get through a period of time like this. You have to think about, if you use wood for heat, if you're buying it, it's going to go up in price. And wood is not exactly good firewood. It's not cheap right now. If you're cutting your own, supplies may be harder to procure because when things go up in price, the people that didn't care that you came and cut the down trees before might start caring. People might try to steal wood more than they do so now. Anything that you're using already, you're going to have to think, how will it be affected by this type of an event. And odds are that any survival event is going to affect it pretty much the same way. If it's global cooling or if it's peak oil, we're going to end up in the same boat. Different little micro aspects of it, but the, the, the macro aspects are food shortages, increased expenses, harder to get the resources that you need to survive. So the things that we say to do every day right here, are the things that you do to prepare for this. So what do you do to get ready for global cooling is the same thing you do to get ready for everything else, from pandemic flu to hurricanes and tornadoes to global economic meltdown. It's all the same formula. Being able to feed, clothe, shelter yourself. Having as much cash reserve as possible so that what is still available on the economy is available to you so that you can afford to get what you really need at a point where you're not worried about whether or not you have the latest iPod anymore. You're worried about whether or not there's food on the table tonight for the family to eat. Because those are the scenarios that we could end up in. And I think the human race has lost touch with how fragile our condition on the planet is. We look around and we take a lot of things for granted. We think that things will stay the way that they are politically, economically, globally, environmentally. We believe that all of these things are pretty much in a state of equilibrium. And the reality is that we are on the precipice of collapse at all times. It is only a combined human will that has actually stabilized the, the global political systems to the point that they are now. And if you don't believe that, all you have to do is go to a nation where we don't have this level of effort to stabilize things, where people are still allowed to run around in a lawless society. Some of these smaller countries in Africa, some of these places in South America. And just look at the way that people live and the, and the suffering that goes on there. And these societies that, that look at themselves as modern and refined and sophisticated and driven by science and logic and reason and law, there are a few degrees in temperature, there are a few degrees in decline in oil. There are a few degrees in public health. They're just a few degrees away from dropping into that same catastrophic failure point. In fact, in many cases, they're more vulnerable. For many people in these kind of third world parts of the world that, that are around the equator, if it got cooler, okay, it gets a little cooler. It's still warm enough to grow their crops. If the oil prices go up, okay, I don't have any oil anyway. I live in a hut. But in a city like New York with 8.5 million people, shut the lights off for a day and everybody walks out. What happens if you shut the lights off for a week or a month or a year? And all the places around it have the lights off too. And there's no food. And that's a reality. And, And the person that's a yuppie 
that sits at a desk every day, types on a computer, has never hunted or fished in their life, is the most vulnerable and therefore the most dangerous. They're the ones that will turn, and after a big piece of them die off, they're the ones that will band together, and they'll go out and steal and murder and kill, because feeding your own family becomes more important than whether somebody else eats. That's the human condition. It's what happens when there's not enough. When there's not enough food, shelter, and water, what human beings do is they kill each other until there is enough. Again, that's something we can look back to history and see having occurred from man-made disasters and from natural disasters since the dawn of humankind. When resources are too short to meet the supply demand of humans, they kill each other until there's enough people left to balance out with supply. And when there's enough people left to balance out with supply, the killing declines. It never stops. It never goes away. We've been killing each other since the first man picked up a rock and hit another man in the head with it. But we have a relatively calm society as long as supply and demand match. And all I'm saying is that all of these scenarios put us in a precipice where when supply and demand go into a mismatch, society begins to break down. So keep doing the right things to make sure that if something goes wrong, whether it's global cooling or anything else, you have the ability to take care of yourself. You have the ability to sequester yourself away from society, to keep your head down. And to let people go out and do whatever they're going to do and make sure you can defend yourself if they come try to do it to you. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you to figure out how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Spend